You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 20th of July, 2018, on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Daniel Bage. On today's show, with the White House still trying to explain Donald Trump's comments and backtracking on Vladimir Putin, the president invites his Russian counterpart to visit him in Washington. The White House has announced on Twitter that Vladimir Putin is coming to the White House in the fall. Say that again? My guests today are my Monocle colleagues, Paige Reynolds, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, and Carlotta Rabella. They're here to discuss this and the day's other top stories, including a New Zealand firm conducts a simple experiment on productivity in the workplace by paying employees for five days, but only making them work for four. Which begs the question, why aren't more companies experimenting with the norm in the age of personal wellness? And print is doing very well here in the UK. How's it doing elsewhere? As you know, we love magazines and newspapers. Plus, we can't tell anybody about the baby yet. I just told Bill. Yeah, and I told Harry. I told many, many people. With Cher taking on ABBA for Mamma Mia 2, we'll chat about what artists we'd like to see in a musical. That's all to come on Midori House, here with me, Daniel Bache. So welcome to Midori House. My guest today, Carlotta Rabello, Paige Reynolds, and Fernando Augusto Pacheco, my colleagues from Monocle 24. Welcome everyone to the program, some for the first time. Uh, let's begin by talking about the surprise actions of who else? President Donald Trump. The president says he plans to invite Vladimir Putin for talks in Washington just days after their kind of awkward summit in Helsinki. The plan was announced to the country's director of national intelligence, Dan Coats, on live television during an interview with NBC. This as diplomats and military officials scramble to find out if Mr. Trump made any deals or offered assurances to Putin over Syria, Ukraine, or anything else. It took intense pressure and criticism for Mr. Trump to yield and reject a proposal by Mr. Putin for Russia to question American citizens in exchange for access to 12 Russian military officials indicted on charges of trying to sabotage the 2016 presidential election. So, considering the carnage from their first meeting, Carlotta, should the White House let Trump anywhere near Vladimir Putin? Well, I guess my answer would be no, but actually uh, I think it hasn't played as bad with his base as we want mm. it to be. So obviously, um, he started a week with you know accusations of treason following the Helsinki summit. Um, but you know this invitation to of Vladimir Putin to the White House is basically him just saying to his critics, "I don't care, and I do what I want." And I was just looking up the poll for the Axios survey, and apparently, 79% of Republicans approved of his handling with Russia's president. Mm. Uh, after the summit, and an even higher share, that's 85% also by Axios, um, they think the Justice Department investigation into the Russian uh, alleged meddling in the elections uh, is just a distraction. So those are the polls right after the summit. And even though we had for the first time a few Republican voices criticizing him, it seems that for the people that actually vote these people in office and his base, uh, it just seemed like he handled it well, uh, which is a scary thought because mm-hmm. I don't think that that trip to the White House is going to prove to be 
good news for anyone. So no matter what, it seems uh, his base is going to back him, even if insiders in the White House and people on uh, Trump's White House team are pulling their hair out. Uh, Paige, I wonder uh, if they continue to be left in the dark. Even John Bolton was surprised by things that came out of that press conference. Uh, I mean, being undermined isn't really enjoyable. Was there any chance any of these people flip or walk out on Mr. Trump? I think it's really difficult to say. He sort of seems to go through each of these summits and, and as Carlotta was saying, just weather the storm. Um, however, I think it is really problematic at the moment um, after the fallout of the Helsinki summit that so many of his top officials, the top diplomats, have just been completely ill-informed. They, they haven't been told about the verbal agreements um, that Trump and Putin has, have had. And in fact, what's happening now is it kind of seems like Russia and the Putin's government are kind of calling the shots. So um, comments on Wednesday by Russia's ambassador to the US, uh, Anatoly Antonov, um, he said important verbal agreements have been reached, including the preservation of the New START and INF arms control agreements, and the Russians were ready and willing to implement it. But we've heard nothing on the US side. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's really problematic that there are communication channels that are just not working properly, and that, that's going to end up being a, a security threat. You touched upon a really interesting point there, which is how it seems like Russia is calling the shots and it was just a verbal agreement. Now, one of the most dangerous things about the meeting between Putin and Trump in Helsinki is the fact that it was one-on-one, like just the two of them. There was no one taking like an official record of the meeting. And we've seen since then Russia saying, oh, after the talks with President Trump, we're now doing X, Y and Z. And no one knows if that actually was part of the talks. And that's what highlights the dangers of when two leaders and two dangerous leaders in this case uh, meet with no witnesses to say, wait a minute, that wasn't discussed. Is one word against the other and kind of like, who would you trust more? And it would look bad for either of them to say, wait a minute, you are lying. So they're going to end up both playing this game long term that probably Trump will do some things and say this was what was agreed with Putin and they never discussed it and vice versa and just opens this um, this door for anything that Russia does now regarding Ukraine, regarding anything to say that was discussed with Trump. Uh, and it just legitimizes any uh, insane idea that they might have already had in the bag to play uh, in the next couple of months. Now, I, I was just reading earlier that... Um, uh, Garrett Marquise, who's a, a spokesman for the National Security Council at the White House, um, he apparently one of the topics that came out during their meeting was if pro- Trump would support a referendum in Ukraine over legitimizing Crimea. And and he was asked, the spokesman Marquise was asked uh, about that. And he was like, well, the administration is not considering supporting the referendum uh, in eastern Ukraine. But that was about it. And that just shows like the sort of topics these men were discussing. And for Trump, probably supporting a referendum Mm -hmm. uh, is the same as putting the name Trump under a brand and as a business transaction without realizing the sort of implications in terms of international and geopolitics that it will have uh, for the region. I want to come back to uh, what may or may not have been said and who may have heard it in that room. But uh, first of all, looking at summits, many of them were kind of left wondering what actually gets accomplished. And these uh, FaceTime can perhaps get things done. But with Donald Trump, it it appears we never know. He offended everyone at the G7. Um, We 
may not ever know if anything gets accomplished with North Korea after his meeting with Kim Jong-un. Um, and he may have created a massive national security risk by meeting with Vladimir Putin. Faye, is there anyone else we should keep Donald Trump away from? Well, to, to be honest, maybe, you know, not many people might agree with me, but I actually kind of welcome some of those summits that Donald Trump does. I know he's very, you know, irregular in his diplomacy in a way, but but I think just the fact that he's meeting, you know, King Yun and, and, and Putin as well, I, I think perhaps could be a good strategy. Of course, I'm, I don't trust uh, Trump as a man. I mean, his, his policies are uh, at times quite hateful. But, but, you know, I think we should also be open, you know, if he does meet Putin, you know, perhaps we shouldn't be that suspicious at times as well. I, th- I think I, I would agree with Faye in the sense that dialogue is obviously extremely important. Mm. Um, and yeah, we shouldn't just shun that just because of the people having that dialogue. Mm. But ultimately, I think what people are afraid of is that Trump goes into these things with seemingly little preparation or little plan. And what could end up happening is that, you know, people like Kim Jong-un and uh, Putin, they gain a lot and the US doesn't gain anything. Do you know, we're sort of left in a situation where the US ends up conceding because Trump is maybe enamoured with these other sort of populist, right-wing, conservative leaders, and we see little real change. And if anything, we just see a sort of more dangerous kind of global uh, field. Something interesting I read today is that uh, the State Department interpreter may be the only other American to have heard what Mr. Trump and Mr. Putin were discussing. And there have even been calls for her to testify in front of Congress to disclose um, what came out of those discussions. Uh, Is that democracy? Do you think, Faye? Is that fair? Well, that's that's very odd, you know, first of all, that meeting they didn't have. But, but it's such a difficult question. I wonder if the Congress has the right as well to ask her for, te- for testimony. It, it is a very difficult one. I don't I don't think they should, actually. Well, we shall see what comes of all this uh, fallout. Uh, we may uh, may wonder if uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders has the hardest job in all of the United States. But uh, I want to move on to New Zealand now. We could probably stay on Trump forever, as we do. But uh, in New Zealand, a company has carried out an experiment. Many of us would gladly have taken part in, I think. The firm which manages trusts, wills, and estates paid its employees for five days of work, but only made them work over four days. And apparently, the scheme was so successful, the company has made the four-day, 32-hour work week permanent. Productivity among 240 employees went up, and workers said they spent more time with their families, exercising, cooking, and working in their gardens, things uh, people may like to do with some free time. Uh, Sweden's six-hour workday uh, is effective for productivity, we've seen, but in France, the 35-hour work week uh, is said to have only increased costs, and it was complained about, but uh, is this this a good thing, Carlotta, do you think? Well, I think... I understand the benefits and why it has increased productivity, because if you not only condense your work week and end up having more time for yourself, you know, the amount of times like after on Sunday when you realize you have to come to work the next day, you wish you had an extra 24 hours. So it just means like all of the faff around your day to day work day, you just eliminate that because, you know, like it will pay off when you have an extra day. So I, I would agree with having that model personally. Uh, I think it would just mean you and obviously it doesn't apply to all industries. Mm. Um, but speaking about the gen- generic nine to five office job, um, it d- does make sense because then if you have happier employees, the, that will somehow reflect in the work that they do. 
My only issue with, with, with this law, I mean, this has been like one company in New Zealand, which is a fairly wealthy country. You know, I'm sure they have uh, amazing working laws. As Carlotta said, I don't think this would work in any industry. In fact, our industry, it wouldn't work at all. Right. I mean, we're here <laughs> in a radio station. We have to be here daily. So sure, for some companies, amazing if they can. And the problem is some countries, I think they'll be very naughty and they'll say, well, you work four days a week. Cool. Amazing uh, balance. But they pro probably they're not going to increase the salaries. Right. I very much doubt they would do what this uh, Kiwi company as well. And, and, and I think, you know, people, there is a reason why people go to an office nine to five every single day. You know, it's it's kind of part of the routine. They can enjoy the weekend. We even, ha we even had a discussion in the meeting this morning. You know, sometimes people, if you, people are going to start working on different days, I, I actually don't think it might bring happiness to everyone. Yeah, it's strange when you're not in the office at the same time as all your colleagues and you wonder yeah. how that helps productivity. But but uh, on the productivity side, if you've got, I mean, a whole bunch of people that aren't around and working less, you wonder where there's cost savings because you'd have to bring in other people to fill in, right? Um, so that that's that's an interesting uh, point. Uh, the head of the company uh, that did this experiment said contracts should be based on tasks an employee is expected to perform rather than hours spent in the office. Otherwise, he said, uh, it is you'd just be lazy to try to figure out what I want from you, so I'm just going to pay you for showing up. That doesn't really make sense. So uh, perhaps, Paige, should contracts be based on productivity? I, I think it's a really interesting point, and I think it'd be hard to disagree with that because mm. surely, you know, by principle, the more productive you are, the better you are at your job, right? So I think, but then I think a, a day off a week, I think that's a lot, and I and I and I, th I think I think there are issues with that. Issues that Faye raised were, were really interesting. Um, I've got a friend that works at a company. They have something called the flexi hour, mm. which means that one day a week they can go home at like four p.m. Something like that. I think having small incentives or even the idea to be able to work from home if you need to that day, you've got some other things to do, or to be able to work remotely from abroad. I think these are all things that are sort of coming up because work is becoming so much more remote and so mobile. And I think that. I think the the happier you are and when you have more flexibility, you're going to be more productive. We've all sat there at 6pm on a Friday and thought, I'm not really going to get anything done in the next half an hour. So it does feel quite counterintuitive to stay in if, if you're not going to be kind of on, on, on form, really. And there are different, you know, uh, approaches that, as you're highlighting, that you could do those sort of incentives. I remember, I believe it was last year or maybe it was even longer, two years ago, we covered a story here at Monocle about... Uh, a lot of the Scandinavian countries and even Iceland as well about because the winters are so tough and not even in terms of temperature but daylight you mm. basically you go for months and months in the dark um, almost that companies started sending their employees in the winter to sunny locations so they would go to Bali or um, whatever and it wasn't like, oh, go to a resort and whatnot. They would have an office there. And it increased the productivity of the team. So it's like for three months of the year where everyone would be feeling, you know, that lack of sunshine and affects the way, you know, your life, your work, everything. You relocate most of your team to a sunny location and the company ends up, you know, being managed much better. And it's just, as you just mentioned, small examples of how the workplace should take more into account that in the end of the day, you're not just a number performing a task, you're a person and your well-being impacts how well your company is going to perform in the end of the day.
Yeah, you bring up something uh, interesting there with with people trying out different things. On the entrepreneurs on the show I produce, when I'm interviewing people, I always ask them about what the company is like to work for. And a lot of startups are the cool, trendy places to work, and big businesses are left kind of wondering, well, how do we hold on to talent? How do we keep people? How do we make this a good place to work? So is it surprising then um, that more companies aren't experimenting like this, do you think? I think there's still it's still very ingrained in the current business model mm. and the way companies are run. The idea that if you are an employee, you work in the office and that's about it, you know, and not being able to uh, make those concessions of working from home or maybe sending you abroad to work elsewhere. Um, I think it's half of mentality. It has to do with an older generation of CEOs that weren't brought up or educated like that and haven't been able to catch up uh, with the way the market has changed because the way we do business now is very different than when yeah. they started. And half is just because this is how everyone does, we should do it as well. And then you have like um, sm a small I want to believe a minority of just greedy bosses that just want <laughs> to like to for you to work every day for as least amount of money as possible. And that's sadly still very true in the business world. Yes. I don't see this happening in London, to be fair as well. Remember, it's a very, especially in bigger cities, it's a very competitive market, you know. So even even for the workers, you know, th th there is competition there. Although I wonder, say, who wants to take a day off? I mean, I, I have a feeling not many people will, will say that, yeah. especially if it's optional. Yeah, in, in Japan, I know a friend of mine that was working for, for a big broadcaster there said if you were, you know, if you weren't at your desk for like 18 hours, you were seen as lazy and unproductive <laughs> and people would literally just put in hours on the clock, even if they were sleeping on their desk. That was okay, as long as they were in the office. And that's like the mm. flip side, isn't it? And I think even what Carlotta was saying about particularly people higher up in the company, like these CEOs who have more conservative ingrained ideas about that, if you right. want to get ahead, if that's their if that's their opinion that you should be working for X amount of hours, you're going to do it. It's, a really, it's such a competitive yeah. job market mm. in London. It's just... And what Fernando just mentioned about the, the holiday, like who wants a day off... It, when there are studies, and sadly I didn't look up any of the actual numbers, but it, 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 there are out there that show when companies do not have, uh, they don't give you the mm. limit of how many holiday days you can take. So, oh, this company is 23, this one is 21, is unlimited. People always take yeah. less than what's above, uh, that what's the national right. um, uh, average or the minimum requirement when it's like, oh, you can take as many as you want because then you feel guilty. Yeah. It's like, I'm taking advantage of the system. Of course, you have one or two people that always take advantage of every system wherever you are. But in general, then it just shows how people end up, you know, feeling that they owe so much to the company because they're so nice and giving them unlimited holiday. So there's this flip side about also the psychological way you do business and how that impacts your employees as well. I think we found something we're all passionate about again. Uh, <laughs> this, this is Midori House here with me, Daniel Bage, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Carlotta Rabella, and Paige Reynolds. Coming up next, we discuss the publishing industry and musicals. Stay tuned. The Rolling Hills of Somerset might not be the most usual spot for a world-class art space, but it proved to be the perfect fit for Hauser & Worth, an international art gallery with its heart in the countryside. Monocle Films reviews a weird and wonderful show that looks at our relationship with the land. We used to base our knowledge, our experience of the world, on the land, on nature, on the other beings that shared the world. Now we don't. So I'm trying to, in a way, re-establish a relationship to a form of knowledge that could be useful for us. 
Somerset's Strange Fruit playing now in the film section at monocle.com. Welcome back to Midori House. Still with me, Carlotta Rabello, Paige Reynolds, and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And now, good news for the publishing industry, the print industry, at least here in the UK, according to the Publishers Association. There was a new record in book sales last year, including a 31% rise in hardback titles. Faye, this is kind of surprising news in this day and age, isn't it? Well, Kind of, but I do trust the population that people do like print. And it's this never been a, a big surprise for me because, okay, there are the market for the e-readers or whatever, but I think people, of course, they like to read a, a printed book, a lovely, beautiful magazine. But but I, I was a bit surprised with, with the rise of 30%. Yeah. You know, cool, I was expecting maybe 5% rise or something. So that's that's actually just amazing news. And uh, and, and, and I think actually I did uh, even research on my own country, Brazil. Yeah. Uh, it rose 3% last year. And Brazil is in recession. So, you know, for a country in recession, for... The the publishing industry to be growing. So perhaps it's a worldwide trend. That's really interesting. Yeah, I looked at Canada as well. And last year, in comparison to the UK, which saw a 31% rise, it was a 4% drop in Canada. Uh, but interestingly, 51.5 million copies of books sold in 2017 for over a billion dollars. That's in a country of 35 million people. So... That's more than a book a person. That's that's okay, isn't it? But the the more interesting numbers there is that uh, digital consumption is growing, mostly on smartphones. So news corporations are really tapping into that. Newspapers are really not doing well. So um, we're wondering where people are reading, perhaps mostly online in Canada. But uh, Carlotta, how about in Portugal? How are things looking? I was looking up at the uh, latest numbers. And in Portugal last year, uh, which is the most recent figures that are available, uh, around 11.8 million copies have been sold. Now, for a country of over 10 million. That's quite a big number mm. for us. Uh, but what was more interesting is that that's just a, a small increase, which is still good. That is an increase. It's just 3% from the year before. But in overall, there was more money, but there were less bulk books sold. So people are seeking to buy more quality and right. limited edition books rather than, you know, going for the pocket travel size book that you can just uh, get for a, a, one year or somewhere. So it just shows how, like, the, slowly the book market in Portugal is getting t- turned to quali- towards quality rather than quantity, which is a really nice trend to see. And obviously, uh, a lot of um, uh, bookstores uh, across the country closed last year. It was really sad. It was a year where we saw a lot of established independent bookshops uh, shutting down so to be able to see that people are now seeking the places where you can find those quality titles, uh, I hopefully will mean that some of them will come back. Paige, here in the UK, we, we hear stories about uh, bookshops uh, and retailers not doing so good. Waterstones is one I think of, but uh, numbers are way up. So where are people getting books? Yeah, I mean, I think the obvious answer is, is Amazon. Yeah. I think I think everyone's sort of, everything's gone online. And that's that's definitely, I think, the uh, the pessimistic side of, of, of the publishing industry is, is the decline, steep decline in independent booksellers. What I found interesting about the statistics we got from the Publishers Association uh, yesterday was that um, there's been a uh, particular resurgence in non-fiction books um, and reference books, and I thought that perhaps that was indicative of sort of the political times that we're going through. Is everyone just trying to understand what's actually going on? You know, the books, books about American politics, books from people like James Comey, things like that. You know, do you think people are sort of trying to work out 
the political climate. Um, And interestingly, also on that sort of political note, um, the UK's got to be a little bit careful as well about um, Brexit in regards to the publishing industry um, because um, not only... You had to bring it up, didn't you? I had to. I'm sorry. It's like... (laughs) <laughs> we didn't manage it's inevitable. Yeah, we it's managed inevitable. not to avoid Trump, but I thought Brexit, so we'd, we would be able to. I know, <laughs> unfortunately, no. But uh, last year, 36% of uh, the exports of um, books were shipped to the European Union. Um, and there's a um, and export sales worldwide account for 60% of publishers' revenues. So, hmm. yeah, it is interesting that that's not all. Intriguing numbers to dig into, yeah. Mm. Um, uh, I had a question penciled down here about uh, do any of us buy books and magazines? regularly. I'm just going to go around the table and say yes for all of you, because I know you do. Uh, you get the free paper at the news, the news at the airport, maybe, but uh, we're picking up books and magazines. Quickly, though, does anyone have a library card, I wonder? <gasps> Big That's deep so interesting. <laughs> yeah. So I have one, but not in the UK. I have okay. one in Portugal. I have one in Toronto, too, oh, I, so I not have in the UK. One in, I have one in Moscow. <laughs> I have, an, oh, I have a, an account with my news agent, so... Okay, that's, that's <laughs> fair <good>. enough. <laughs> Faye's got credits so yeah. on Soho, so Okay, fine. We all read. Uh, let's move on then to music. Um, as Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, is released in cinemas worldwide today, It's. I thought it would be good to ask all of you which band or artist you'd like to see in a musical. Uh, Faye, since uh, you pitched this topic, uh, let's start with you. Should we start with you or should we start with someone else? I'll, 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 I'll let, 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 let's start with me then. Okay. <laughs> First of all, I love ABBA. I okay. love Mamma Mia. I'm going to see it tonight. Well done. Thanks God for ABBA. But <laughs> I, my musical is going to be the history of... No, not the history of Madonna. Madonna yeah. would be in it. Oh. And I think there would be a lot of sex, drama, love. And she has an amazing catalogue. In fact, I chose a song... And even a couple of lines there will be in my musical. And I hopefully we can hear it right now. I want to kiss you in Paris. I want to hold your hand in Rome. I want to run naked in a rainstorm. Make love in a train. Cross country. Hey, sultry. Sorry for the yeah. slightly X-rated, but I think it'd be yeah. perfect in a musical. You know, it's very sensual and. How are you imagining, like Chicago, like in yeah. the like the cage, like tango? Yes, a, a Chicago X-rated. Yeah, but Lots I think dry ice. we need a Madonna musical. Basically, that's oh, yeah. what I'm trying to say. For sure. Okay. Yeah. Just a reminder for listeners that later tonight, or later in your day on the Monocle Daily, Faye and I will discuss some tracks inspired by this re-release of Mamma Mia on Phase Global Countdown. That's on the Monocle Daily. That's coming. A lot of share and a lot of ABBA. <laughs> Carlotta, what would your musical be of? So I I have a bit of a not the best relationship when it comes to musicals of artists that I like. I love musicals. I love music. But, for example, um, a few of the ones I've seen, uh, I, I just it just doesn't pay tribute to it. But in the spirit of the discussion and trying to contribute, I think my musical would be um, a female empowerment story of this woman in New York City trying to make it and she doesn't need a man. And that's by Queen Beyonce. And it's called (laughs) Run the World Girls.
So that would be like the opening sequence. Like you'd be at the theater, fades to black. You just see like this mean laughter in the background and this huge like collective of girls dancing around. Go like from all sides of the theater. It should definitely be a female, female only cast. Yes. Oh, yeah. And then yeah. Beyonce emerges from the ceiling singing this <laughs> and it's great. And that's how you start her story. This and would then, be a massive hit. And then it's all flashback. Like that's how it starts. But it's all <laughs> like I'm going to tell you how I got to this point and it goes all the way back. Uh, if anyone needs like a story idea, producers, we it, like please, yeah. um, I'm yeah, <clears throat> cr at yeah. monocle.com. <laughs> uh, Paige, uh, what about yourself? Right. Well, I've been I've sort of been the gloom merchant today, and I'm going to continue in that fashion. <laughs> um, I love music, but I just I can't get on board with musicals very often, and particularly can't get on board with musicals of musicians I like. This comes from a, a slightly traumatic personal experience. Oh. I was unfortunately in my school's production of We Will Rock You, oh. the Queen musical, and <laughs> no. I, I just I honestly I can't listen to it again. is is forever ruined. Um, so I think I think we've got a, a clip from it. Um, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Did Brian May and Roger Taylor sign off on that? Because they're pretty uh, strict on what can be done with. I really, I really hope not. After that rendition, even I have to agree. It's quite awful. Yeah, yeah. The only musical I've ever walked off in the middle was the Queen musical. Really? Yeah, Mm. because I love the band, and I was just like, this is ruining it for me, and I don't want to sit here for another hour and a half and ruin the entire career. I do want to. I do want to see the film, though. Yeah, Yeah, the film is meant to be really good. But it's quite different. I've got one for you. Had a pick as well. Yeah, I have one. I do have one. I was. uh, I really wanted to go see the Green Day American Idiot musical, like the rock opera thing, and I never got to go see it. But I thought that was a great concept. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I was um, at a festival with one of our colleagues, and the Killers headlined. And for sort of the the uh, encore, uh, Brandon Flowers came out in this like gold suit, and it was. I don't know. He just he's such a showman, right? And I thought, mm-hmm. wouldn't it be brilliant to do like a down and out in Las Vegas musical with the Killers music? I think it would be amazing. Anyways, let's hear let's hear some of the Killers. Lots of glitter and gold suits and dancers. I think it would be epic, as I said. Um, it just made me we'll think of one. like a car chase as, as well. Like, yeah, exactly. It's, it's very anthemic, I think, all that right? music. And that's why it, work, it would work with that big production. Exactly. And they had that Samstown record, which is kind of, kind oh, of like a best, story that goes best. along, right? Exactly. I think it would work really well. Anyways, we called it. 
You heard it here first. That does bring us to the end of today's show. Carlotta Rabello, Paige Reynolds, and Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you very much for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show produced by Fernando, researched by Paula Scholes, and our studio manager, Christy Evans. More music next, and then at 1900 hours, it is the menu with Marco Sippi. And we'll hear more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily. That's at 2200 London time with host Paul Osborne. Midori House back at the same time on Monday, 1800 in London. I'm Daniel Bache. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great weekend and goodbye.